was a sunny day in San Luis Potosi, Mexico. My partner and I were on vacation about to go sightseeing in the historic downtown area. Before we got on the trolley, we agreed to put our phones away. My incessant scrolling and constant notification checks had been disrupting our connection to each other. At first, things went smoothly. We laughed. We did take our phones out to take photos, but that was it. Then the driver made a pit stop so a few people could take photos at a military base. While we were waiting, I mindlessly picked up my phone and started scrolling through Instagram. My partner gave me a sharp look, not just a disapproving look, but a look like, are you really doing this after we had a whole conversation and now I'm pissed at you? I knew my nonstop scrolling and attachment to social media had the tendency to take me out of the present moment. It had become my way of winding down or just checking out if I was feeling overwhelmed. But you do that long enough and you accidentally train yourself to check out all the time, to never really be present, which can be a drain on both your relationships and your own emotional well-being. But there's a flip side to all of this technology at our fingertips too. The internet can be an amazing connector and lifeline. I use social media to share my personal journey with mental health. And I've had people reach out to me in my DMs to tell me what they're struggling with. And sometimes I'm able to help. So the question is, how do we find that connection and community without the obsession and distraction? How can we make our digital lives something that enhances our mental health rather than damages it? I'm Francis Lees, and this is Turning Points, a show about navigating mental health, sponsored by Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I've worked with both kids and adults for more than 15 years, and I've seen how gaming, smartphones, and all that can create conflicts in families. So today, I want to talk about navigating our mental health in the digital age. This is something that affects all of us. But this particular concern for kids and teens around this issue, because young people are still developing their sense of selves. If you're a young person scrolling through social media, looking at other people's lives that look amazing, that social comparison can really impact you in a negative way. I had a chance to talk to two people who have some great insights about that. First, I talked to a teen who has figured out how to use the power of the internet to express his most vulnerable feelings and to help other people feel less alone. His name is Gael Ator, and he's one of the creators of the Teenager Therapy Podcast. He and his four co-hosts talk about all sorts of difficult topics, like self-consciousness about acne, growing up poor, getting cheated on. And what's beautiful is they don't hold back. In a recent episode, they had a raw and uncomfortable conversation about how doing the podcast together has created conflicts in their friendship. The only reason why I didn't like how businessy it felt was because 
it like kind of interfered with our friendship. Everybody here has the same choice. If you guys are not fulfilling my needs, then I'm gonna make the choice to leave. You're not you're not tied I, to I us in think, any way. There's I I think I think like like we are tied. <laughs> we are tied no, with the but, podcast. That's what I'm trying to say. I just think that you should. <sighs> it's okay. Yeah. You want us to care about you, and you it like really hurts you when you don't you don't feel like we do. Their show has inspired a huge online following of teens and adults who are looking to connect and understand their own feelings. I got to talk to Gael about his journey in creating the Teenager Therapy Podcast and about the importance of being vulnerable. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, so can you just tell our audience your name, how old are you, and a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, so thank you for having me. I'm Gael. I recently turned 18 years old, and I'm the host of the Teenager Therapy Podcast. We describe it as a coming-of-age story told in real time because it's a culmination of our mistakes and our growth. The mission is help people feel less alone. How do you make people feel supported, even if you don't know them personally? And we talk about all sorts of things that go on in our lives, and we try to be really vulnerable about it. And so vulnerability and mental health kind of go hand in hand. So those are kind of two of our main values. How could we take care of our mental health and also have the courage to be vulnerable? And you see that through all of your episodes. And I remember on your episode about the realities of your friendships with your co-hosts, and you said there's no easy way to get into some of these conversations, right? You just kind of like have to go at it. And so that's what we're going to do. Tell me a little bit about your earlier teenage years. When did you realize you needed to take care of your mental health? It was around the middle of seventh grade when I realized I was feeling really sad for no reason. I was just waking up sad and going throughout my day, not feeling great. And then also I was having a lot of confidence issues because I didn't like how my body looked. And I decided like, you know what? I really want to start taking care of myself. And during that time, thankfully, I had some really great teachers that were able to teach me a lot of things about how to eat properly and exercise properly. And I began to exercise a lot because I was reading that exercise can help your mood. And it was so gradual. But one day I woke up and I just found myself feeling happy. And I found myself feeling a lot healthier and happier with myself. How old were you when you got on social media? And did any of that impact your, your mental health? I think when I really got on social media, it was probably 13. I was feeling very alone. And so I like went online to find friends and find a group of people to talk to. And back then, Kick was a very popular app. And I remember going on that app and like finding support groups um, where everybody just kind of talked to one another. And that was incredibly helpful. And so all I can really say is that social media was very helpful to me when I was young. But that is also a very singular experience because I know many people that got themselves down the wrong path through social media and they ended up getting hurt and taken advantage of. So it's really sort of a, a gamble whether you'll be safe or not, especially when you're so young. So why do something so public and social like that for the podcast rather than just keep a diary or have private conversations with your friends, right? Yeah, that's it's actually kind of ironic that I decided to do something so publicly, which is talk about our feelings and make it my whole mission to be vulnerable in front of others. Because in reality, I don't like being vulnerable at all. Like it takes a lot for me to open up to someone. 
but for some reason when it's online i don't feel that i think it's a lot easier for me to open up and just share to the world than it is to share to one person specifically it kind of feels weird for me to just come up to you and be like hey can i talk to you about my struggles and so the fact that it was so public to me felt like a lot less pressure than going up to someone directly and that's why i think we eventually just went into this rabbit hole of accidental advocacy for mental health and vulnerability when did you realize it was really helping other people and oh i mean from the very first episode i think we began to see that lots of people were sharing it people were telling us like wow this was really incredible i relate to you guys so much please keep doing more of this and that's something that even back then we're just like i mean i i don't understand how it could help you so much it doesn't seem like we're doing anything too great or amazing like it's just us talking and the more we did it and the more dms we got we realized the reason it was helping people so much is because it was helping people feel less alone because a lot of our listeners see themselves in us and see their stories and our experiences so you talk a lot about being authentic and vulnerable which is amazing and i think it's an amazing accelerator towards healing and making long lasting changes but when you do it in such a public space, right, do you think it's always safe to be vulnerable and authentic and expressive? Or even when your listeners are putting so much personal stuff online, you think it'll come back to like haunt you in some shape or form? Especially like when you're applying to jobs, all that stuff. Right. Oh, I think <laughs> I think it for sure would. And I remember tweeting at one point, I hope my future employer like doesn't see this or something because sometimes it does get a little worrisome about what I am putting out there. And that's why I say having the courage to be vulnerable it takes a lot of bravery and a lot of courage because what you're doing is you're opening up and giving someone the chance to hurt you you're giving them very easy material for them to hurt you right and that's it's a double-edged sword because vulnerability for one helps you feel connected to other people it makes you feel safe it makes you feel trustworthy and it makes you trust others but at the same time it also gives others the power to hurt you but i guess the way i view it is it's just something that we have to live with. We can't avoid hurt our entire lives. So you have, again, a lot of tough conversations on your podcast. Sometimes I was listening to it and I was, I was cringing in some moments, but I was like, oh, man. <laughs> and a lot of adults have a hard time having these difficult conversations. So do these tough conversations ever get easier? Oh, it definitely does. And I, I think it's actually kind of great that you say you were cringing at some parts because if you cringe at some point during the episode that means it was a real like conversation that it was raw because the most uncomfortable cringeworthy conversations are those that are just unfiltered it's just pure emotion uh, having these conversations takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of communication skills because you have to realize how to deal with the many emotions that will arise such as anger how to diffuse a situation, how to properly express your own thoughts and your own hurt, and seeing also like anger as a tool instead of just an emotion. And so most of the time you're going to end the conversation and feel either more connected to them or feel like you made some progress. Okay, it's good to know. So there's hope on the other side, guys. Yes, like there <laughs> is. Yes, there is. It's hard. It is. Have you found that, you know, helping people online with your podcast, is that something that's positive for your mental health? There's definitely a lot of times where there is just too many emotions to handle because I guess managing the podcast is both a lot of work and then there's also the relationships and the relationship dynamic that you have to keep because you have to ensure it's like a healthy group dynamic because our podcast is five people and keeping a group of five together isn't easy at all. 
but five people with very different personalities all to be on the same page. And there are a lot of times where it has gotten very difficult and one person feels isolated one person feels alone. And what I have learned is that truly, I think the only fix for that is just talking about it. And whenever it does get hard, I have to just realize I can't abandon it. And I think a lot of us find it easy to just abandon it, move on to the next friendship, to the next phase, just leave it alone. But I realized having a long-term connection is so much work. It is an incredible amount of work. And the most you can do is if you want to succeed, you have to just talk about your issues and be open about your emotions. And I think overall, the podcast has been great because it's allowed me to understand what it takes to build a long-term relationship and keep this long-term commitment. It's not easy, but I think it's necessary. So I could see that you're holding on to the lessons, which I think if you're in this for the long game, that's what's going to create the longevity of what you're doing. So can you say a little bit about, because you, I mean, you spent your senior year in a pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, How has that affected your friendships or the way that you think about the need for social connection? Because I know that your podcast is about making sure people aren't left alone, but there's still a limit to that because people can just hear you, but they can't maybe be in the same space as you. Does it matter if we see friends in person or virtually? Oh, yeah. I think there's only so much that virtual can do. And I think during the worst part of lockdown, where really no one was going outside at all for months on end, I think that was really damaging to all of our friendships. But I remember for me, during those times, I felt very isolated. And something that I I think all of us crave is to have at least one person that you feel like you could talk to without having a filter and just being able to have their support in a way that feels unconditional. And that's really hard to find. So there's definitely a limit when it comes to virtual, I guess, friendships and such. And I'm sure there have been people that can make it work, but it takes so much effort especially when you can't be there to physically comfort one another because physical touch is another thing that is incredibly important. And sometimes even just being in someone's presence is so much more powerful. And I think technology can't fulfill that need. What advice would you give to your younger self or younger teens about staying mentally healthy, making sure that you have social connections and striking a balance between your digital life and your in-person life? I would say that It's very much an active effort. It's not something that's going to come to you. You really have to go find it. And so my best advice is that if you want to be happy, you have to take the first steps to reach for it. Beautiful advice. And what about the balance? How do you find the balance between digital life and in-person? I don't think I've yet to find those boundaries, to be honest, when it comes to digital life and in-person. I see my digital life as the same as my in-person one. Because I like sharing things with people. I get very excited about the things I find and I instantly want to share it with someone. And for me, social media allows me to do that. Well, I think what you're doing is beautiful and wonderful. I think it's something that is totally needed. Thank you, Gael. Thank you. Gael says that he finds it easier to talk about his feelings online than face-to-face. I think that's true for a lot of us and especially for many kids. When I was a counselor at a middle school, sometimes students would post something online that was basically a cry for help. A peer or teacher would report it and the kid who posted it would end up in my office. In cases like that, the online sharing led to an in-person mental health support, a good result. Unfortunately, that's not what happens in most cases. 
Too often that cry for help is either ignored, only gets really superficial responses like hug emojis and hearts from acquaintances. And sometimes the way kids behave online is the problem. Whether it's constantly comparing themselves to others on social media or becoming obsessed with online gaming. So what do we do when our kids' online lives are hurting them? I put that question to Dr. Michael Rich. He was actually a filmmaker in his early career. Then he had a midlife crisis. He decided to become a pediatrician and study the effects of media on kids' mental health. He's currently the director of the Digital Wellness Lab at Boston Children's Hospital, but he's better known as the Mediatrician. Well, thank you, Dr. Rich, for being here. We're excited to talk to you about the digital wellness space and the impact it has on mental health, specifically young people's mental health. Can you share with us how media consumption is different for young people than it is for adults in terms of how it affects our brains and mental health? Well, I think one of the things we have to really pay attention to is why kids are drawn to screens so powerfully. They seek experience, which they can get vicariously through a screen, whether it be through surfing the web to playing video games that are sort of a, an analog of life experiences. They are building their autonomy, their independence from parents. So that's why they want to have their private chats with their friends. They're becoming socially conscious and thinking outside themselves and their family to the larger world. And the internet is a great place to connect with people who feel similarly about important issues. And they're building their identities, which they can have a much larger sort of picture of what is possible for them regarding their gender, regarding their interests. Now, how does it affect them is really, quite honestly, a story yet to be told. We need to break out of the old thinking of the real world and the virtual world, the online and offline. These kids live seamlessly between the two. This is one environment for them. And when we start talking about don't do this online uh, or you know, et cetera, that doesn't make sense to them. We should be talking about here's how you behave, period. In the physical world as well as the online world, here is how you show that you care, that you respect people, and that you're going to build toward a better society, as opposed to sort of saying, here are the rules for online and offline. That's old thinking, and it doesn't work with the kids. So I'd like to shift a bit to the clinic that you run at Boston Children's Hospital called the Clinic for Interactive Media and Internet Disorders which treats young people whose excessive gaming, social media, and other online activities are affecting their health and daily lives at home and at school. Can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of cases that you get at the clinic? We have been caring for kids who in various ways have been impaired by their use of the interactive media space really for over a decade, but for the last four years have had a formal clinic um, in which we have medical doctors, psychiatrists, social workers who are really focused on those kids whose physical, mental, and or social health has been impaired by their online behaviors. We are seeing a lot of gaming, most prevalent in boys, social media more prevalent among girls, pornography use, which obviously doesn't come out usually in the first, second, or third visit, but eventually reveals itself in our care, and something we're calling information binging, which is kind of going down the endless rabbit holes of Reddit or YouTube and following link to link to link. 
we have yet to have a patient who did not have some underlying psychological struggle that is driving this behavior. So for the kids who go heavily into gaming, there's a remarkable number of kids who are struggling with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And we are seeing a lot of social anxiety in the kids who are using social media. And as a result, we are calling this problematic interactive media use because the problem is not in the specific device or platform. It is in the interactivity. And that happens because there is built-in variable rewards in both the game's environment. How many likes am I going to get? How fast am I going to get them? And how does that make me feel about myself if I don't get the likes or whatever? So what we think we are seeing here is actually a syndrome or a collection of symptoms of these underlying already pretty well understood conditions like ADHD and anxiety that are manifesting themselves in this interactive media environment. I have had kids who have become so focused on a game, particularly interactive online games, massively multi-user online games, that they will literally stay up all night and not fall asleep until it's time to wake up for school. So they will sleep through school. I've had kids drop out of successive schools because of this. They become very angry when asked to, or in some cases forced to go offline. I've even had um, suicide attempts when parents took the router out of the house. And um, so it becomes quite serious for them. And one of the sort of steps toward that is the sense that parents don't understand what they're doing because the parental approach is often one of policing them, sort of saying, you've been on too long, don't do that. Or I hate Grand Theft Auto, get rid of that or whatever. So it's always negative. It's always punishing them. And frankly, the more that parents don't understand and don't like what they do, the more they want to do it. So it becomes part of their attempt to define themselves as individuals separate from their parents. So that being said, I think that one of the most important things you can do as a parent is to actually use media with your kids. So that becomes then a shared space so that when they are online, when they're in social media and they run across something that they don't understand, that confuses them, that weirds them out, that upsets them, they feel they can come to you and ask about it and talk about it. And I've had really wonderful experiences with kids who, because their parents did not make this toxic, did not make this like, don't ever do this or bad things will happen or you will be punished. But more said, look, let's learn this environment together where the kids were able to teach the parents because let's face facts, the kids are better at this than we are, right? The kids were able to teach the parents the technical facility but the parents were able to bring in that executive function that the kids aren't going to get till their mid to late 20s of impulse control, future thinking, cause and effect, all of that judgment stuff that only comes both with time and experience. And it then becomes a shared space rather than rock and roll that is for the kids only and the parents just hate and don't understand. So obviously you're an expert in children development, but can you talk about screen use for the whole family 
I think that what we need to do is really pay attention, first of all, to our own behavior, because we are not only teaching our kids, but we are modeling for our kids how to behave. We should develop our killer bees. First of all, be balanced. Think about what you're doing, when you're doing it, and what outcome you expect from it. That requires scheduling your day and sort of saying, okay, I'm going to check my emails during this period of time, but I'm not going to have notifications pop up every time an email happens or a text happens. I think that being balanced also means thinking about what you may not be doing because you're doing this. And that might be a conversation with your child. It might be having a meal together. It might be getting outside and it might be being bored. I'm a big proponent of bringing back boredom because boredom is where imagination and creativity happen, not just because it provides the empty space, but because it is a little uncomfortable. And so you fill it with new ideas. And we have a bad habit of filling it with whatever drivels coming across the smartphone. So I think that being balanced, being mindful, and that's not just about being mindful of what we're doing and really think about the whole of our lives. Let's remember why we had these kids in the first place, right? We wanted to bring new lives into the world and spend time with them and discover them and be surprised by them. Let's allow that to happen again. And that's where the be present comes in. These devices suck our brains. They will pull us away. So let's talk a little bit about the study that your lab did. You surveyed parents about their children's media use during the pandemic and 45% of parents said it was helpful for their children's mental health. Can you say a little bit more about those findings? Yes, I think we have to put it in context with what was going on. I don't think that they were saying this is better than getting together in real life. What they were saying is this is better than not getting together. So I do think that while there were a number of frustrations in it, one of the good things that happened is that everyone, kids included, became more sophisticated about using this online space for really connecting with people in more deep and meaningful and sustaining ways. I have great hopes that if we can learn to use social media right, it can be an instrument of peace. Because if there is a young person in our country and a young person in Iran on social media with each other, being authentic when their respective leaders say that is the enemy, go fight this person, they're going to say, forget about it. I know this person better than I know you. Why should I listen to you tell me how to behave with this person? So that's my fantasy, that the kids will figure this out and teach us all how to be better humans. I share in that optimism with you as well. One thing I've done over the years has been positively shifting my own social media to inspire and connect and educate others. What are some examples of some ways that social media in particular can have a really positive impact on kids' mental health? Well, I can actually give you some research. It's an interesting example of research that we did to really look at this issue where people say social media increases anxiety and depression. We looked at the affective states of a lot of young people. And when we averaged it all out, we noted that there was a tilt toward more anxiety and depression in those who were using social media a lot. 
when we broke it down to how they were using social media and especially by race and ethnicity, what we found was that the entire depression and anxiety was based on social comparison, looking at other people and seeing they feel better than I do. And it was carried entirely by white kids of high SES or middle class SES. When we looked at African-American kids, they actually were happier for their social media use because they were using it to come together around issues like Black Lives Matter, issues where they sought each other out as feeling the same way, as experiencing the same things. And they were actually using it in much healthier ways to come together as a group and to recognize kindred spirits out there because they had a shared cause and a shared vision as opposed to, hey, look at me. Wow. That's powerful. I did not know that. I think that's key distinctions because I think we all have this um, understanding that it's like a one size kind of fits all. Everybody's going to feel a little bit depressed. Everybody's going to feel a bit of anxiety if they get on social media. And that might not be the case for a lot of people. And I don't know if you've heard of the Teenager Therapy podcast. Thousands of teens listen to it. And they feel less alone because of it, which is a beautiful thing, right? But what do you think of things like this where teens and young adults are connecting, but also disclosing some of their most vulnerable feelings on social media? Is this purely positive in terms of connection? Or do you have advice for young people who may not understand the implications of sharing deeply personal things online? Well, I have to say that teenage therapy kids are heroes of mine because they are in fact using social media in the way that we think is very helpful and healthy in the sense that they are using it to talk of their worries, to talk of their limitations, to talk of the issues they are struggling with as peers. Nothing is purely positive or purely negative. It's always a mix. And do you have any stories of families who decided to change the way they interacted with screens and actually have seen the positive benefits of those changes? Yes. Here is an outrageous suggestion that a good friend and colleague of mine has been doing for more than 10 years, and that is to observe a digital Sabbath. One day a week where you turn it all off. OMG. Most people say that's impossible right? And very few people will try it when I suggest it. But when you do it, the first thing is, the first time you do it is excruciating because we're so used to jumping every time we hear a ping. The second time you do it, it's really liberating. You have time to yourself. You have time to think. In fact, the concept of a Sabbath is global, is worldwide. One day a week where you put worldly cares aside and you focus on what's important within and around you, those you're close to with yourself. And in this case, it lowers our hyperstimulation. It gives us a deep breath. It gives us a moment to recenter and discover ourselves and each other. I agree. Well, thank you, Dr. Rich. We're so happy that you had your turning point and you decided to do this work. All right. Well, you're doing fabulous work too. And quite frankly, it's through podcasts like this that we're able to recognize that we all have the skills to manage this. This doesn't require special expertise. This just requires translating what we already know about being parents, about being human, 
into a new environment. After that trip to downtown San Luis Potosi, I put time limits on all my apps and removed unnecessary notifications. And I have to say, it improved my relationship, but it also improved my own mental health. I started feeling more grounded and less interested in what's happening on social media. Dr. Rich mentioned a digital Sabbath, whether it's a few hours or an entire day. I might just try that out. We could all use a mental break from our digital lives. Those are the stories we have for you today. I hope you've come away with some ideas on how to use your screen time to boost your mental health. To hear from Gael and his four co-hosts, go to TeenagerTherapyPodcast.com or follow them on Instagram at TeenagerTherapy. And for more tips on how to live by those killer bees Dr. Rich talked about, be balanced, be mindful, be present. Follow Dr. Rich on Twitter at Mediatrician or go to DigitalWellnessLab.org. Visit globe.com forward slash turning points, one word, for more information on mental health care and resources. To hear more stories of turning points, join us for our next episode where we will hear how yoga, meditation, and other mindfulness practices can help us cope with difficult emotions and reduce anxiety. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Maria Louisa Tucker, Brian Rivers, Matt Sav, Eric Zeller, and Rachel King. And special thanks to Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan and the Studio B team at Boston Globe Media. Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan are committed to guiding and supporting members on their behavioral health journeys, connecting them to the services, tools, and support they need.